What are we doing wrong with starting pitchers and closers? I'll ask Mike Gianella about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 1st. Happy Canada Day to those of you who observe. It's show number 25 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus discussing the in-season mistakes fantasy managers make with starting pitchers and relievers. We'll talk about his fab analysis reports at Baseball Prospectus, his Doubt Wars team from the Memorial Day Tout Mock Draft, and his Boons and Banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Bryce Harper, Jazz Chisholm, and Kenley Jansen. And Harold will be covering the American League, including two returnees in Tampa, the arrival of Italian breakfast in Kansas City, and injuries to Michael Brantley and Austin Meadows. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Diego second baseman Max Ferguson. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about taking on my wife in a baseball gambling contest. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's National Holidays Weekend in North America, and we gotta talk some baseball. For those who might not know, today, July the 1st, is Canada Day, our national holiday celebrating the 155th anniversary of Canadian Confederation back in 1867, when the British Parliament passed the British North America Act, combining the colonies of the United Canadas, Ontario and Quebec these days, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, into a single dominion within the British Empire. If you think that sounds like a lot of British in there, well, some of us feel the same way. And of course, Monday is the 4th of July, a federal holiday in the United States when many of our American friends celebrate the 246th anniversary of Independence Day, when the Second Continental Congress voted to ratify the Declaration of Independence, which said the 13 colonies of America were no longer subject to British rule. There's those British again, something we have in common on this holiday weekend, although you threw them out and we just kind of asked them to put a nice cushion underneath the yoke. Anyway, lots in common in these two celebrations. Fireworks, eating too much, drinking too much, and of course, enjoying baseball. And speaking of baseball, I don't know if you heard about this, but Major League Baseball had to hastily supply the Toronto Blue Jays with new celebratory caps to replace a set that prominently featured a stylized U.S. flag across the top. Not a lot of merch appeal for that in Toronto, which, as Rob Manfred might have overlooked, is in a completely different country. Okay, not that different, but different. So happy whatever holiday you celebrate this weekend. But enough of this palaver. Let's get the show on the road. In the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. I'm glad to be back. How many drafts are you playing this year and how are your teams doing? 
So I'm in seven leagues, which if my wife is overhearing, well, you know, she'll laugh at that. But I've cut down. I, I was in a few more last year. So I'm in two AL, two NL, and three 15 team mixed. Uh, I'm tied for first, third, and fourth in the mixed leagues, uh, second in both my NL leagues, and tied for fifth and sixth in the AL leagues. Not bad. That's solid. Um, and what's funny is that in the, the AL leagues, and I, I still have a shot. Like, I'm not like fifth and like, you know, 30 points out of first. So, yeah, I'm having a, a solid year so far. Which hitters on your team so far have been the pleasant surprises? Um, Alejandro Kirk and Andres Jimenez. Uh, I, I like Kirk. Uh, I didn't really get him for a lot, but I, I didn't think he'd do this. Like, he's not only one of the best or the best hitting catcher, arguably, in ba- but one of the best hitters in baseball. Uh, I'm really pleased with him. Um, and Andres Jimenez, I, I took him as a reserve pick in deep mix. I, I didn't really think he would do that much. And he's he's really been like a, I don't want to say a borderline star. I don't want to oversell it. But he, he's been really good. Like he's just been somebody I put in my lineup and and forgot about it since the beginning of May. Kirk, I just heard, is leading the all-star balloting by a million votes over the next guy behind him. And uh, of course, a lot of that is the Toronto fans that really stuff the ballot boxes. But a lot of it is just a lot of people are starting to be aware of just how well he's playing. And I think that's interesting. And it's going to be really interesting next year when he could probably be the top catcher going off the board. Uh, he he could be. I mean, you know, there's there's Will Smith. I, I think is still really good, but yeah, and you know, we'll see what happens with Sal Perez, who, who's hurt right now. But there's there's a case to be sure. Which pitchers have you had pleasant surprises from? Not as many as I'd like, but <laughs> I, I'd say uh, Kyle Wright for starters. Like I, I picked him up early in a league, and you know, he's he's slipped a little, but I I can't complain. And then you know, one surprise based on his peripherals is is Marco Gonzalez. I, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't expect him to be as good as he is, and no. you know, twelve team formats. I, I think he's still you know kind of iffy, but. He's gotten the job done, and really the thing with him, too, he doesn't strike out a lot of batters, but he gets you a lot of innings. So that, that volume, those innings, him sticking around to, to maybe get the win, um, he's had some sneaky value for me on the back end of, of one of my 15-team staffs. Turning it around, which hitters on your teams have been disappointments, big disappointments for you this year? Well, the, the biggest is um, Javi Baez. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of him, but I, I do have him in one place, and um, it, it's a team where I, I had a balanced offense, so he he was sort of kind of the linchpin there, and he just hasn't done it. He's picked it up lately, but still disappointing. Um, and then in a similar vein, Whit Merrifield, um, you know, he, he's also picked it up, but I, I really was kind of hoping he'd have like a you know a super like big month, and it just hasn't happened. Maybe it will. Um, and the steals are you know steals are not nothing. He he's helped me in steals. He's been a contributor, but I was definitely hoping for a better average and more runs to this point. How about pitchers? You got a couple of duds? A couple, although I, you know, one area of success for me this year has been pitching, so I don't have too many. Um, the two jump out are uh, um, Jose Urquidy on, on the Astros. Um, he's just hasn't you know gotten it done. And you know, look, I, I know you know he was a low strikeout guy to begin with, and kind of on the periphery, but he he's really fallen off. And quite honestly, he's been lucky to have that four three six ERA that he has. He, he's actually pitched a lot worse. Um, and then Lou Trevino, uh, Lou Trevino was a closer on a lot of my teams. Yeah. So that did not like really uh, make me happy. Uh, what's really funny is I, I kind of sneakily picked him back up in, in a couple of leagues, like after I dropped him. So maybe that'll work out. But to, to this point, he's, he's not done it. Yeah. The last time I saw anything about it, he was kind of worming his way back up to the top of the table again, despite pretty, uh, not that great skills. Yeah, the, it's funny though. If you look everywhere, I think including like HQ's metrics, like the peripherals all say that he should be doing a lot better. 
Um, I do agree the skills are, are probably above average and certainly not elite. Like there's better relievers, but it, you know, in the majors, but it's Oakland. So really how good do you have to be? <laughs> right. He might be one of their better relievers, which says more about Oakland than it says about Trevino. You write uh, regularly at Baseball Prospectus covering fantasy baseball, and uh, every week you do a fab analysis where you look back at the weekend's fab runs and talk about what went on in there. And why do you do that? What's the purpose of it for your readers? Well, so the purpose of that series is, you know, I, I think a lot of folks like fab is, is new to them or, or something, you know, they've maybe been doing, but they don't feel comfortable with. So the idea is to look at three industry leagues and, and kind of show, you know, based on different formats and rules, how people are, are spending their, their fab money and in a hope that it'll help them. Um, you know, with, with in some cases, there's people actually bid like Monday as close to games as possible. So we try to get that out on Monday morning so they can use it. But really, it's more of a perspective thing of like, OK, you know, so this type of hitter or reliever went for this price. You know, this might be what I bid, you know, depending on, you know, the, if it's a similar situation. In the most recent edition, which was week 12, you noted that Edward Olivares has been tempting fantasy managers for years in Kansas City. He's got that 2020 potential, but Kansas City kept running out duds like Ryan O'Hearn, who seems to have a upper limit on his OPS of about 650. Guy like Kyle Isbell is not that great either, 520 OPS this year. They got rid of Carlos Santana. And you also noted the playing time machinations of Tampa with Josh Lowe and Isaac Paredes and all the shifting and, and moving they do with their players. How do we calibrate a young player's potential with the likelihood of peculiar roster management by his team? I think the most helpful thing in this case is knowing each team's trends and tendencies. Like this isn't really a secret, particularly for, for Tampa. Like they, they've just always like operated this way. Um, you know, I'd say in the case of Lowe, like he just wasn't good. I, I think he could have had a shot at full-time play if he had come out of, you know, the blocks, um, you know, hitting as a hot hitter. But really, like, you know, another example of teams like the Giants and Dodgers, they tend to run platoons out there. They, they tend to try to maximize, like, their, their lefty-righty abilities. So, so really, you know, if you're looking for, like, players who will get more of a clean shot, I think it's pretty, I don't say easy, but it's pretty magical to go back and, and look at a team. You know, a, a team like the Mets, for example, is much more traditional. So if a player gets promoted there, you, you can look at them and say, well, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good chance he's just going to play every day. Whereas a, a, a player on the Giants, it's like, well, that's a decent prospect, but there, there's a good possibility he's going to be in a platoon from the get-go. O'Neill Cruz went for $12 out of 100 in labor NL, and the price seemed low to me given all of the hype and the ballyhoo about the fact that O'Neill Cruz was getting called up. What factors do you think depressed the bids on a fairly big ticket name like O'Neill Cruz? So labor is unusual this year in that we, we had our, you know, draft and before the lockout was resolved and Steve Gardner, you know, who runs, you know, that and does a great job. Uh, he, he kind of decided, so we didn't have like chaos and weren't just bidding on a bunch of free agents to keep the top 12 free agents and he went off of ADP like out of the initial like salary cap draft auction process. So what wound up happening that had a heavy impact on the NL. There were nine free agents who weren't available. We had like a separate special fab bidding process for them. And then on top of that, there were players like Chris Bassett and Taylor Rogers who were traded in to the NL later who weren't, you know, we also bid on. So a lot of the the fab has been depleted. I mean, that that's part of the reason that Cruz was cheaper. Um, all that being said, I think 12 for Cruz was still a little low. I, I think he should have probably, you know, went for like maybe 20 or, or a little higher, you know, given 
the ceiling. And, and frankly, the biggest surprise is that somebody dropped Cruz. Like, remember, this isn't some pop up prospect who, you know, came out of nowhere is, you know, having, it usually happens to the pitcher, right? Like having a, a great time or a hot time and the minors who gets promoted that we didn't expect to be up this year. Cruz was dropped. So I, I think that was more of a surprise than an NL only with, with six reserves that somebody didn't have space for him or, or couldn't trade him and, you know, had, had to drop him. Do you have reserves in that league plus injury space, we, a, a separate IL, or is the reserve for injuries as well as guys you just want to stash? It's like tout. So you you have unlimited injuries and, okay. and a six-player six reserve. So so that's, yeah. So if it was like NFBC, I'd be like, okay, I, I could see it. Like right. reserves can pile up, injuries can pile up. But no, we, we have unlimited injury slots as well. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, what other experts league bids did you find unusual in that column? Um, well, the ones that jumped out were in your league in Tout AL. I, I thought the it was Tyler Nevin and and uh, Brent Phillips. The, those bids seemed really high. Now I, I get it; it's an AL only. You know, it, it's it, you have to find offense in particular. I know that's really tough. I'm in three mono leagues, but it's also a thousand dollar fab. But I also feel in a league where you know at some point players are coming over from the National League, like the deadlines in about a month you have to be somewhat judicious and you have to be like, well, you know, maybe I should, should pick my spots a little bit here. Like Gavin sheets went for one thirty three. that, that I kind of get, I, I see the talent there with him. Phillips is, and Nevin have really struggled and it, it's just, and I'm not, I'm not Cassie and the person who made these bids. I, like I said, I've been in these leagues. Sometimes you, you have to do that. But, but in terms of what jumped out at me, those, those two really jumped out. Yeah. Especially in these mono leagues. And as you mentioned, I play in tout American league and Sometimes the problem is you've got an injury at second base and you don't want to take a zero week after week. So you grab whatever second baseman is on the, on the wire. And oftentimes it's somebody that ordinarily you wouldn't come anywhere near, but your, your hand is kind of forced in that regard. And the other thing I think that affects the bidding patterns in tout is that they have the $0 bid. So really you, you have that fallback position. If you're just kind of looking to fill space later on, you don't have to worry about holding on to, you know, $10 worth or whatever, because you can always load up with zero bids, especially on relief pitchers and that kind of thing. Yeah. There's the zero bids make a difference too. Like in, in labor, we don't have that. So like right now, for example, because I, I splurged early based on the conditions I was saying, I have $3 of fab left. And unless somebody goes on the 60 day IL, I, I can't reclaim like any fab in that under those rules. So I'm kind of stuck. Like I couldn't even bid the 12 on cruise in, in that example. And I don't regret it because I'm, I'm doing well. And I, I think I decide to take the, the benefit early. So you know, a, a lot of it is just rules dependent and you know, what's going on in your, your league. I'm in last place in fab remaining fab budget in tout because I spent 700 of my thousand when, uh, AJ Pollock came over right after uh, our draft. It's one of those situations where you say, I'm not really crazy about the outcome, but I can't, I can't disparage the process. I think it was the right decision to make. We talked about that the last time I was on. And in one of my, you know, the one AL I was in, he was eligible. I think I bid something similar. It was like a hundred dollars scale. I think I bid 68 and he went for 71. And, and so the funny thing about that is that, I, I don't necessarily, I don't regret not getting Pollock, but like I look at my outfield and it's kind of a big shrug where it's like, eh, I don't necessarily, he might've actually been an upgrade on my worst outfielder. Like that's how thin like the AL typically is. So I, I, I'm proud. We'll see what happens. I still have nearly all my fabs. So I'm probably going to make a big, you know, splurge in, in that league at the deadline. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily think getting Pollock was a bad move in that, in that format. 
And as I said, he hasn't done anything that I was expecting. Four homers and one steal uh, so far. And we're what? Well, of course, he missed a whole ton of time right away, too. I think he played two games and went on the IL for four weeks or something like that. So I guess we'll see what happens. But it it is kind of disappointing. But as I said, if anybody says you made a mistake, I'm going to say I don't think I did because I, I got the player for the full year. If I hang on to the 700 so I can get a crossover in July, I get two months. And I think that's the big difference that we were looking at. It's a process thing too, right? Like he didn't, he didn't work out, but like, like I, the example for me is I, my, my big splurge in one of my NL leagues was Sean Mania. And regardless of what Mania does, and I think Mania has been fine. Like if Mania had been mediocre, it's like, well, I had the chance at getting a like an sp2 all season if he pitched like an sp4 oh well you know i I think i was right to make the move and and you know blow nearly all my fab in that league which i did as opposed to just holding on to it and waiting and and we've seen years by the way where those players don't come over right Right. i've seen years where the big prize is somebody where you're like "Eh, you know he's he's okay but he's not really going to move the needle for me i remember one year in tout where Right at the, there was a flurry of trades at the deadline with all kinds of guys trying to grab up a few dollars of fab because we we're allowed to trade fab in that league. And I ended yeah. up with either the first or second slot, and everybody was mad about it. And there was one guy who traded his all his fab to two different people, kind of thing. And it was a real nightmare. But yeah, in the end, nobody came over. I forget who I ended up getting with my big fab advantage. It was like, I can't remember. He was a catcher for Milwaukee, and, and, Everybody thought he was pretty good. and it was probably Jonathan Lucroy. Lucroy, that's exactly who it was, yeah. And then uh, the second catcher who got grabbed was Gary Sanchez, and I think he came up, <laughs> came up and hit 15 or 18 home runs the last two months. And, yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, he, the, you know. the year... Yeah, the year the year I won Tout, I had the most fab, and I I had a choice, but and it was the year you know the Mets were in the World Series, and I had a choice between Jose Reyes and Yuana Cespedes, and I chose Reyes, so <laughs> I made the wrong I made the wrong choice, uh, but I I won the league anyway. Before we get off this, uh, I'm curious about your opinion on a couple of guys who are probably going to be big fab targets this weekend. Uh, I mentioned earlier Carlos Santana was standing in the way of progress in Kansas City. Of course, they traded him to Seattle, and they called up uh, the prospect Vinny Pasquantino, who was leading the whole minor leagues in some offensive categories. He was banging home runs like crazy, driving in runs like crazy. I think he was batting like close to 300. How much do you think Vinny Pasquantino will fetch this weekend, and is it going to be too much relative to what the talent level is? Well, I, I think he'll fetch a lot, and you know, I think some of this in in a deep mix for well, in a lot of ALs, he he's already gone. I'm I'm guessing in you know your tout AL, somebody probably like stashed him because you you can stash minor leaguers like early, even in the deep mix. I'm in somebody. I think it was Scott White of CBS stashed him a couple weeks ago, which is very smart, but. Like in leagues like TGFBI or NFBC, where he he's available if you know you didn't stash him all the way back, I think he goes for like you know two hundred or three hundred. I, I think he's one. He's people are going to perceive him as one of the last you know big potential like minor league you know free agents. Um, I, I know there's I think it's Corbin Carroll on the D backs. He might be the the best if he comes up, but it's not as certain he'll he'll come up. As far as whether that's a you know good move or not, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Pollock and, and process versus results, which is it might not work. Like I I, I like Pasquantino a lot. Um, I I do wonder you know kind of like if he has the track where he's kind of just fine and he hits like 250 or 260 with a bunch of you know dingers or he's more like well he's solid. 
but not worth that big bid. And maybe there's some you know hitters that, that come across that are better. But in terms of process, I, I really don't mind taking the risk, particularly if you're down in power and you need to take some risks. Like let's say you're like sixth or seventh in you know in, in home run and RBI overall, and you're like, well, I need a corner. Like I need somebody. You know, I, I need somebody who's just gonna provide something like I know for me and you know my leagues I, I I'm actually strong at corner I wish he were eligible at middle infield I'd I'd probably make a more a, aggressive bid for him in that case so a lot of this comes down to needs right a lot comes down to what your roster looks like I'd say if your third corner is weak in a deep mix league you should bid aggressively it might not work but it, it's probably the right play and I'm curious what you think of Derek Hall who's been called up in Philadelphia and why I ask is uh, there's been a lot of Twitter buzz saying this guy is going to be a better hitter than Vinny Pasquantino. He can drive the ball in all directions, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, our baseball HQ scouting team says his ceiling is kind of a backup platoon type first baseman or DH. What do you think of Derek Hall as a bidding target this weekend? I mean, I, I think your HQ folks are are pretty much right. And, you know, we, we've seen players like this in the short term go off. So maybe he, he does that, but I, I really think what you're looking at here, you know, I hate to make comparisons, but it kind of reminds me of Darren Ruff and, you know, by the way, it's not disparaging. You know, Darren Ruff had, you know, has came back to the United States after being in Korea for a couple of years and has put together a solid, you know, career as a platoon bat with the giants or solid late career. But I think that's what you're really looking at here. I, I think you're looking at a hitter who is going to have his moments. Um, the power is legitimate, and and the park certainly helps him. But really, if if you're looking at him as like, oh, he's going to be the savior, I, I'd say no. Hall's somebody in a 15-team mix that I might try to throw like a modest bid on and, and just see what happens or a backup bid to Pasquantino if you don't get him to be like, well, you know, there's, there's no harm, no foul. I'd just also be ready to move on pretty quickly if if it doesn't work out. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, you had a story at Baseball Prospectus recently about the Memorial Day tout wars. You weren't able to commit because you had something else going on during that draft, but you wrote about it and picked what you called a doubt wars team. What was the selection process and what was your thinking going in? So this wasn't a draft I actually like conducted based on players I wanted, or it wasn't a skills exercise. It was an exercise to kind of see what preseason ADP would do. So what I did was I, I used preseason NFBC ADP and just made a pick at the end of each round. And I wanted to see based on that exercise is if, if the touts doing this draft were waiting early performance too much in their selections. At the top of the draft, you got a struggling top talent guy in Vladdy Guerrero Jr., a couple of IL guys, Albies and Bueller, and a disappointing, somewhat disappointing pitcher in Julio Arias, and a really disappointing hitter, oddly enough, Whit Merrifield, who's somebody who's on some of your other teams and has been a disappointment. But in your analysis, you said, this isn't a bad start. What did you mean? Well, one one rule here that was important is I didn't take injured players, like someone who was hurt at the time of that Memorial Day draft. But I didn't want to weight it too much by saying, well, Albies or Bueller got hurt after the draft. So I just took them. So assuming at the date of the draft around Memorial, you know, in US Memorial Day, if there was a healthy Albies, I think, you know, with Albies, Vlad, and Merrifield, you're still looking at a solid offensive core. I think the same is true with Bueller if Bueller had stayed healthy. And, you know, Urias has already kind of picked it up. And, you know, Vlad, the last month or so outside of the average, has actually been fine. So I, I really still look at this team for the first five rounds and think, yeah, this, this isn't bad. 
you only had one dud in your round six or ten, and again, it's a guy you had elsewhere, Javier Baez. What, how, how did your other picks in that tier work? Well, the theme with all these players, except you know maybe Jansen, because closer prices or draft price is kind of weird, is that they all were arguably overdrafted in March, but I think they're being too heavily discounted now. Um, Hernandez and Baez are bouncing back somewhat. Um, Ray was drafted too highly, in my opinion, in March as, as an SP1, SP2. But at this price, he's like kind of more of a, a top-tier SP3, and I, I think that's okay. And Marcus Semyon. So, you know, Semyon, there's been so much talk about him. But but since May 1st, if you, you kind of extrapolate that to a seasonal pace, that's like a seasonal pace of 25 home runs, 90 runs, 80 runs batted in, 31 steals, and a 261 average. That, that's highway robbery in the seventh round. I mean, if, if that's what he does, you know, like on, you know, prorated for the next three months, I'd, I'd take that all day. Which players jump out at you from the later rounds g- going middle uh, onward? Uh, the three are like the the struggling hitters who who were Jesse Winker, Trent Grisham, and, and Joey Votto. Uh, you know, in theory, they could all bounce back in the second half and, and be great values. Um, they could also just continue to be busts and extreme disappointments. Um, I, I, I think in shallower drafts like this, people like to play the upside late. And they usually do with young players or, you know, somebody who's like, oh, you know, he hasn't done it yet, but, you know, he's young and he's new. I think you can do with veterans like this. I I think you can take a trio of veterans and say, well, they might bounce back. And this was a 12 team format. You can always just dump those players pretty easily into the wire and, you know, pick up somebody who isn't struggling or, you know, isn't continuing to struggle if they don't. And what is the message or the learning that we have from the column as far as going into 2023 drafts before the season, not during it? Well, my, my two takeaways were, you know, don't, don't focus too much on players who are mostly or entirely have their value built on speed. And in this draft for me, that was Merrifield, who we mentioned, and, and Miles Straw. And then I think the other takeaway I had is be be a little wary of one-year pop-up players like Teoscar and Marcus Semyon. I, I think in retrospect, Semyon, and I say this having drafted him in two or three places, was valued like a, a round or two too highly. You know, still, as I said, there's a lot to like there, but he wasn't going to you know duplicate what he did in Toronto last year, even if he had stayed with, with the Blue Jays. I think that's correct. And when you look at a guy like Marcus Semyon and you, you've seen him, he was pretty good once he got his career turned around with the new focus and stuff in Oakland. He started really performing well. He was great in Toronto. And I don't think you can overly discount the move to Texas and the just the regression to what it, we would consider a more normal performance, which would be around 25 homers, 275 average, something like that. And it's interesting that he gets overvalued to start the season undervalued at this point in the season and the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's exactly right. Which is, I think people now, now the steals didn't come out of nowhere, but he's running a lot more than he ever has. He's going to pretty easily eclipse his career high of, of 15, which was last year. But it just goes goes to say, you know, Semyon is is a highly skilled and from everything I've heard, an extremely hardworking player. Like he's he's beaten the scouting, you know, impression of him over the years. It's just that from that fantasy perspective, you know, you probably should have been banking on like twenty five home runs and fifteen steals, and not forty five home runs and you know, a, and fifteen steals like he had last year with with a you know two eighty five average from twenty nineteen. I think, but we're looking at Sammy thinking he was going to do all this and he's going to be a superstar and I'm going to get a bargain. And it's like, well, you're probably paying on on the high end for him, right? And you never want to be buying an entire 
expectation of peaks. I'm going to take his very high batting average from 2019, his very high home runs from 2021, right. his very high steals from whenever, whenever, which is also yeah. 2021, I suppose. Yeah, unless, yeah, unless you're getting like a hose, like unless you're tr- getting a true superstar like a Jose Ramirez or you know one one of those like rare rare players, you're absolutely right. You you don't want to do that. And when you look at a guy like Ramirez, he's done it several times. Like his his peaks yeah. aren't outliers in the way that Semyon's were. That's that's absolutely right. Well, Mike, interesting so far as I expected. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Got some National League and American League news, and then we'll come back in a few minutes and finish our discussion. Sounds great. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League and American League news next on Baseball HQ Radio. But first, I just want to take a second to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We call it The Big Hurt. It's a column about injuries, with two injuries analysts looking at injuries that affect high-profile players. This week, six players are under the knife, including updates to previous injury reports and new injuries to Jack Flaherty, Kenley Jansen, and Harrison Bader. The Big Hurt is just one of the great reports you can use all the time at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on a family excursion this holiday weekend, so Harold Nichols will be pinch hitting for Ray and doing the American League report. But first, he has our National League news. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. We'll start in Philadelphia, where they put outfielder Bryce Harper on the IL with a broken thumb, the result of being hit by a pitch from Blake Snell earlier in the week. The team also recalled outfielder Mickey Moniak, and it seems like you and I talk about Mickey Moniak way more than we should be talking about him. Uh, Phil Hurt's covering the story for playing time today. Where do the Phillies go without Bryce Harper? Yeah, Phil, uh, Phil ready this news is high impact, and that's for sure. Uh, Harper had been DHing because of a previous elbow issue, and Interim manager Rob Thompson said Sunday that Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos will probably get less time lumbering around the outfield and more time DHing. So good news for Philadelphia pitchers, at least with those two guys uh, in the past year a little less often. But who gets the added outfield reps with uh, Bryce Harper not playing? Philadelphia had multiple candidates to take over for Harper in the outfield. Matt Veerling recalled Mickey Moniak and Odebel Herrera. Phil's also claimed former Cleveland outfielder Oscar Mercado off of waivers this week and he's an above-average defensive center fielder, also a right-handed hitter, so they might platoon him with the lefty-swinging Herrera in center field. Castellanos and Schwarber will get the most at-bats in the designated hitter role vacated by Harper. That would seemingly push Veerling and Moniak into a right-lefty platoon in right field, assuming that Schwarber and Castellanos will get left-field reps while the other is DHing. For the moment, pending more information, we've given Veerling a bump of 50% in the outfield playing time, He's also been learning to play second base and third base, starting a game at each position and could see time at those positions if the team is comfortable with his progress. As for Moniak, we mentioned him before. He had a solid spring but didn't do much in the majors. That seems to have regained his spring training mojo, going 15 for 48 with three homers uh, in AAA. Time will tell whether he can bring that back to the majors. And how long should we expect Bryce Harper to be out of action? Initial reports indicated Harper will miss significant time, suggesting he might not return before September. As a result, we've cut his rest of season playing time from 90% down to 45%, and that could prove to be optimistic. Before we move on, 
Nick, have you ever thought why baseball players don't just wear sturdier gloves like hockey player gloves or cricket players? They wear padded gloves when they're when they're out there because uh, they don't want to get their hands hurt. Why don't baseball hitters do that? You know, that's that's an interesting thought. I you know, I've never worn those gloves myself, so I don't know how they would restrict a swing or how they might affect it, but uh, you know, losing a player like Bryce Harper, you you sure think about and there a way to, to protect those fingers and thumbs better than they currently do when they're at bat. Yeah, and their wrists. And modern hockey gloves are actually really small because they have better materials than they used to be made out of leather stuffed with uh, old pillows or something like that. They were gigantic. And they did compromise your hand movement to a certain extent. But if you take a look at an NHL game, and of course you won't be able to do that anymore this year because the season's over, but take a look at pictures or something like that. The gloves are barely bigger than the kind of winter gloves you would wear just to go out and shovel your sidewalk. Uh, not that you shovel sidewalks where you live, I know, but they're they're really small and quite nimble. I don't know why more players don't at least look into it. Maybe they have and there's something about it. It's certainly an idea, especially when a, a player like Bryce Harper goes down. Uh, you would think that, the, uh, that Major League Baseball would want to look at something like that. Or the teams, you know, I mean, these, the Phils are paying Bryce Harper an awful lot of money and for him to lose all this time just by being hit by pitch. And that seems to be happening more often, by the way, uh, it seems like somebody would be looking into a way to protect them. They wear elbow pads and knee pads and shin pads and all this kind of body armor. And then they leave their hands out there, which is the most delicate part of the whole system. It, it seems odd to me. Uh, one pitcher in Philadelphia who won't benefit from the improved outfield defense is Right-handed starter Zach Eflin, he goes to the 15-day IL with a knee bruise. Uh, new guy Ryan Williams at Baseball HQ covered the story for playing time today. So what happened with Zach Eflin? The right knee bruise is the latest of a series of knee injuries for Eflin. Right-hander underwent surgery to repair torn patellar tendons in both knees in 2016. On the right knee again in September. Uh, Phillies are optimistic that Eflin will only require a short stay on the IL, but Given his history of knee injuries, the situation is certainly worth monitoring. I forget where I read it. It wasn't at Baseball HQ, but somebody recommended Eflin as a kind of sneaky guy to add to your roster if he's available in your leagues, but that was before he got hurt again. Meanwhile, who gets Eflin's innings? For now, we've reallocated 2% of the projected playing time to Bailey Falter, who's expected to be called to take his spot in the rotation today on Friday. Falter has an extensive minor league track record, including a 1.53 ERA, backed by an impressive 29.1 uh, strikeout minus walk percentage and six starts at AAA this season. But his time in the majors has been a mixed bag. A 4.50 ERA, 5.40 XERA between three starts and four relief appearances this year. Um, so hard to know what to expect there. And I saw a note that Eflin had gotten a cortisone shot yesterday on, on Thursday. Uh, and that seemed to suggest that uh, there may be more more going on here than a, 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 a minimal DL stint. On the other hand, sometimes a cortisone shot works miracles and just gets the guy right back into the action. So definitely something worth watching. As far as uh, the difference between a 153 RA in the minors and a 450 in the big leagues, especially with a 540 expected ERA, which is now an even, even a run higher, I don't know that I'd be rushing into my fab this weekend to grab hold of Bailey Falter. A scary news out of Atlanta, outfielder Ronald Acuna, of course, spent much of the first part of the season on the IL with a knee injury, has suffered a foot injury and may be headed back to the IL. He fouled a, ball, fouled a ball off his foot on Saturday, stayed in the game, but came out before the ninth inning uh, after the soreness increased. 
X-rays and MRI came back negative, but Acuna was on a scooter in the clubhouse Sunday and said he was a little worried because he couldn't put any weight on the foot. Uh, he stayed in Atlanta for treatment and rejoined the team Thursday, but still didn't play. So while we wait on news of, for news of the seriousness of this injury, we've dropped to projected playing time 5%. Atlanta's off on June 27th, so final word on whether Acuna is bound for the IL may not be known until Tuesday, so stay tuned. In Milwaukee, the Brewers placed outfielder Hunter Renfro on the I.L., activated second baseman Colton Wong to take his place from the I.L. Tom Kephart covers the Brewers for playing time today. What happens with Renfro's playing time? Uh, Wong's return frees up utility uh, Jace Peterson from being needed as much in the infield, so he could see more time in the outfield with Renfro's absence. Renfro was a major power source for Milwaukee. Peterson and Wong both offer speed. Yeah, Renfro was a, was doing well uh, power-wise and helping a lot of fantasy teams, I expect, uh, as a later-round guy. But, yeah, it's a, it's a blow. And Milwaukee also activated right-hander Brandon Woodruff to start on Tuesday. He's coming back from an IL stint with an ankle sprain, and it's somehow tied to Raynaud's syndrome, which is a, a, a thing that affects. I have family members who have had it, and uh, it affects your feet and lower legs. How did Brandon Woodruff look his first time back? Pretty good the first time back. Struggled with his control and home runs before his IL stint, but his return was a PQS four start in Tampa. Just five innings, but 10 strikeouts, no walks, only two hits, one earned run allowed. So Woodruff's return is just in time. Milwaukee had just lost left-handed pitcher Aaron Ashby, who sidelined with elbow inflammation. And a right-handed starter pitcher Adrian Hauser left his start Thursday night in Pittsburgh in the third inning, complaining of tightness in his right elbow. Uh, initial tests were encouraging, but Hauser's expected to have an MRI today on Friday. Hauser was a bit of a find earlier this year, 3.51 ERA through June the 2nd, despite a dom rate barely over seven strikeouts per nine and a control rate over four walks per nine. But in the five starts since, he soared to a 7.2 ERA, giving up five home runs in 25 innings, and his dom rate has slipped below six strikeouts per nine. Uh, maybe this assessment will help Mike Milwaukee figure out the downturn in Hauser's results. Yeah, it could be that uh, something's going on with Hauser seriously over the last five starts. As you mentioned, Nick, uh, the the much poorer results. I mean, part of it was skills. You mentioned he wasn't striking out that many guys in the first place and was walking quite a few. His command ratio was below two strikeouts per walk. And usually what we expect from a starting pitcher is more like three strikeouts per walk. So he was kind of in a deficit in the skills side anyway, but maybe the injury really exacerbated what was going to happen because of the skill shortage. It, it has happened, and I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens next. In Miami, they placed uh, second baseman Jazz Chisholm on the 10-day IL retroactive to Wednesday. He has a lower back strain, and they recalled uh, right fielder Luke Williams from AAA. A new guy, Tim Cavanaugh from Baseball HQ, is on the story for playing time today. Who benefits from Chisholm's IL stint? Utility player John Birdie will get the bulk of the playing time at second base in Chisholm's absence. Birdie has already worked himself into a regular role at the top of the Marlins lineup by blending his ability to reach base with base running speed. Despite limited play earlier in the season, Birdie has taken this opportunity to run with it. Literally, he leads Major League Baseball with 22 stolen bases. So far, his stolen base performance is backed up by a sterling 380 on base percentage, including a 12% walk rate and 142 speed index. Uh, Chisholm is eligible to turn on July 9th, but reports are that he may need more time than the minimum time to uh, recover from this injury. We've reduced his playing time by 5%. Uh, 
assuming that his IL stoke is close to the minimum. And it might not be, um, it might be more than the minimum, as you said, so there may be a further playing time reduction for Jazz Chisholm. It's too bad he was having a really good year so far. In another edition of Now You See Him, Now You Don't, again, St. Louis right-hander Jack Flaherty was placed on the 15-day IL with a shoulder strain. He had been on the IL, came back, he was really ineffective, and left his latest start after only 49 pitches. They called up a right-hander, James Nail or Naley, Zach Larson, another new guy covering the story for playing time today. So who gets Flaherty's newly vacated innings? Flaherty had three starts since his return with a 10.6 expected earned run average and a 0.7 command over just eight innings pitched. We've adjusted his playing time down 2% with this lack of performance combined with a quick recurrence of the injury. Andre Palante, uh, continues to solidify his rotation spot via attrition. We've added 1% to his playing time. Zach Thompson up 1% seems to be another likely choice for an innings gain, either by spot starts or long relief. Naley's stint may be short. He was called up because of a COVID outbreak in the bullpen. Uh, Even when he's up, he projects as a low leverage operation with essentially no fantasy value. Staying in St. Louis, the Cards send outfielder Harrison Bader to the 10-day IL with plantar fasciitis in his right foot and called up outfielder Connor Capel. Uh, boy, that plantar fasciitis is no fun, Nick. No, it's no fun at all. I've, I've dealt with it, too. It's, it's not fun. So what happens with the playing time with Bader on the shelf? According to reports, Bader has been battling this ailment since the spring, and now we get a chance to rest and see if he can improve on his 220 expected batting average. His bad wheel hasn't slowed him down much thus far, though, of 161 speed, 88 stolen base percentage. So with any luck, fantasy managers won't be without that precious speed source for too long. Our St. Louis analyst cut Bader's rest of the season playing time by 5%, gave it to Lars Newtbar, who gets his chance at a suddenly shallow Cardinals outfield with Tyler O'Neill and Corey Dickerson preceding Bader to the infirmary. We expect Capel to serve as a fourth outfielder defensive replacement, so limited fantasy appeal in that quarter. Yeah, that's what I would have said too. Uh, not a not a lot going on there. More bad pitching news in Los Angeles. Dodgers right-hander Daniel Hudson is out for the season with a torn knee ligament. Uh, Jock Thompson, of course, covers the Dodgers for playing time today. Hudson had been really at the top of his game, Nick, in the bullpen, a two twenty two ERA. He had five saves, nine holds. He was the primary setup man and even the occasional replacement for Craig Kimbrell, who's been a little bit shaky. This is really a blow to the Dodgers. What happens in their bullpen with uh, Daniel Hudson gone for the year? Immediate beneficiaries of his vacated late-inning spot include surging right-handed pitcher Evan Phillips, 195 ERA, seven holds, 30% strikeout rate through 28 innings pitched, and a right-handed pitcher Bruce Starr Gratterol. They'll both bridge to Kimbler. Don't forget the Dodgers have several talented arms on the IL, including right-handed pitcher Blake Trinan, who started the year as the closer and was replaced when the Dodgers traded for Kimbrell and has been out since mid-April with a shoulder injury. He is suspected back in the season's second half. Jock says the situation is fluid because of the combination of Kimbrell's volatility, L.A.'s depth, and now Hudson's injuries. Well, we're speculating for relief pitching fantasy opportunities. And speaking of which, Atlanta has placed former Dodger closer Kenley Jansen on the IL. He has heart arrhythmia problems, which sounds serious. Uh, Jake Crumpler is on the story for playing time today. Uh, the Atlanta bullpen is kind of like the Dodgers, Nick. It's a lot of talented arms in there, very deep bullpen. So what should we expect when save situations pop up while Jansen is dealing with this heart problem? 
This is a blow to the Braves that may not be as ominous as it sounds. Jansen has dealt with cardiac issues in the past, missing time in 2011, 2012, 2018, and in the past was able to stay active by throwing pitches while on the shelf and return to the field after minimum IL time. The situation might be the same if we can see Jansen back shortly, but if any other news surfaces about this being a more serious issue, then our team analysts will need will uh, look at altering the playing time. For now, though, everything remains unchanged. Will Smith should see the majority of save chances over the next two weeks, although A.J. Minter, the most dominant reliever in the Atlanta bullpen so far this year, got the first shot on Tuesday and converted the save. I saw that, and of course, Will Smith, the left-hander, at a bit of a disadvantage in that regard, uh, and Minter, the right-hander, maybe is a in a little better position. And finally, a good news story. Philadelphia called up two-time first-round pick right-hander Mark Appel, who never really lived up to his prospect billing. How did his first appearance go? It went okay. He came into the eighth inning with Philadelphia down three runs to Atlanta, gave up a hard line out to first, the ground single to center, but he struck out Adam Duvall looking and got an easy fielder's choice uh, out to, to end the inning. Um, Appel was the eighth round pick, eighth overall pick in 2012, but returned to college. The Astros then drafted him with a first overall pick in 2013, and since then, everything was a struggle. And in 2018, he left baseball entirely. Returned in 2021, struggled again, but has had more success with over 19 AAA appearances this season, 1.61 ERA, eight walks, 24 strikeouts, over 28 innings. Uh, Pell took the roster spot of Connor Brogdon, who went on the COVID-19 list. So we've only given him a few innings while we watch to see how he does. It's a great pedigree for sure and a, and a terrific story. I remember seeing Mark Capel in the Arizona Fall League at a first-pitch Arizona years ago, right after he was drafted pretty much, and gosh, he looked lost out there. He, it's sort of uh, what's speculative or subjective to say, I thought he looked sad out there on the mound because he just couldn't get the ball over the plate and he looked frustrated and, and you know, he had that kind of slump shouldered appearance. He just looked like he wasn't having very much fun. And maybe that was the problem. As you said, he left the game for a couple of years and got his uh, feet underneath him again. And I, I, I wish him well. Uh, w- would you fab him in the meantime, based on pedigree alone? Uh, based on one big league inning, probably not, but I'll keep an eye on the box scores and see how he does. All right, Nick, uh, thanks very much for this National League news update. And uh, you're staying on to pinch hit for Ray Murphy. He's up in New Hampshire tapping maple trees or something with the family. So let's start in Toronto. And I have to say, I thought I was looking at a playing time today from 2012 instead of 2022. But it's really true. The Rays signed right-handed reliever Sergio Romo. Blast from the past to a one-year contract and sent down Sean Anderson. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covering the story for playing time today. Are you going to be bidding on Sergio Romo? No, I doubt it. Uh, Seattle designated Romo last Thursday for assignment. Toronto grabbed him up in hopes of shoring up a beleaguered bullpen with some veteran mojo. But the mojo hasn't been working so far this season. Uh, 8.16 ERA, 1.53 whip through 14 innings. He's 39 years old, approaching the end of the road on a solid career as a high leverage reliever. But uh, Tim says the Jays will be giving him mop-up, low leverage innings to take the strain off some tired arms. 
Yeah, I watch a lot of Toronto baseball, and I think that's pretty much the situation for Sergio Romo. He'll get a lot of low leverage innings, at least at first, because every time they get one guy doing well, two guys seem to go on the DL. They lost Jimmy Garcia recently, uh, who was serving in a high leverage role in the later parts of games, and he's gone, and gosh, it's just been one thing after another for that bullpen. And other than that, Toronto's been playing pretty well, and, and they've lost some games because of poor bullpen performance. So we'll see what happens with Sergio Romo. I'm kind of rooting for him. I love, I'm an old guy myself, so I like it when those old guys get back into the action and, and start looking like they know what they're doing out there. Yep, definitely. I mean, Me too. <laughs> In Tampa, the Rays expect to have a couple of guys back soon from the IL. Uh, Chris Olson covering this story for Playing Time today. We'll talk about Drew Rasmussen in a second, but first, what should we expect from the return of outfielder Kevin Kiermeyer? Kiermeyer was on track to return tonight on Friday after getting a cortisone shot to address pain in his left hip. That had been a longstanding issue. His return uh, most directly impacts utility Brett Phillips, who has covered center field most often in Kiermaier's absence and figures to lose playing time. But there'll also be a to-be-determined spillover effect to the corner outfield and perhaps DH as well. Uh, not immediately bad news for those hoping that things finally click for outfielder Josh Lowe, though Lowe may want to pick up the pace soon, since thus far in his return to the majors has looked a lot like a previous stint, 17 strikeouts and 31 at-bats. Yeah, a lot of swing and miss in Josh Lowe's game. There's a lot of promise there, but... Gosh, I don't know. Uh, what about Rasmussen's return? Rasmussen was on the shelf with a bum hamstring. Rays expect him within a few days. Not a moment too soon as the Rays are scheduled to play five games in four days against uh, Toronto. Uh, Tampa held Rasmussen's spot open for him during his short absence using reliever Jalen Binks as an opener. Since no other pitcher should be too affected by his return after a three-week absence. The Rays also have right-hander Luis Patino, a very hot commodity in preseason drafts, and he's been out of action for a while now, but he's close to returning. What happens when Patino rejoins the club? Tab will have a decision to make once Patino is ready to return, uh, but he's expected to make at least one more start at AAA Durham, delaying that decision for a short time. It's no sure thing that he goes right back into the rotation. Uh, Chris Olson says there's a good chance Patino pitches out of the bullpen at least for a while. And gosh, if you get into that Tampa bullpen, heaven knows what kind of usage you'll get. Uh, they really like to mix and match things out there. I, I don't know if I'd place a bid on Patino expecting him to get saves out of the bullpen, but I might be interested expecting him eventually to find his way back into their rotation. Although again, the way they manage their pitching is so out of sync with the way everybody else does it. It's really kind of a risky play to, to gamble on any Tampa pitchers outside of Shane McClanahan, I think. In Seattle, the Mariners placed outfielder Taylor Trammell on the 10-day IL with a right hamstring strain. They recalled a couple of outfielders from the minors, Sam Haggerty and Marcus Wilson. They sent a third baseman, Kevin Padlow, back to AAA. Gosh, there's just a lot of shuffling going on here. New guy, Alan Davison, covering the story for playing time today. What are the fantasy implications here? Not not too much, really. Uh, Trammell was out six weeks with hamstring trouble, and just as he came back, so did the hamstring issue. No timetable has been set at this time. Trammell has shown growth this season with an improved contact rate of 70%, a power index of 164, two steals. We've shifted playing time from Trammell to Justin Upton, as well as the call-up Marcus Wilson. Upton hasn't hit much in 2022, is in danger of losing his roster spot as the team's injured outfielders come off the IL. Wilson made his major league debut on June 29th and has shown good defensive skills but struggled with contact. Haggerty can play both infield and outfield. He and Wilson are up for outfield depth, 
with suspensions looming for Jesse Winker and Julio Rodriguez. Winker and Rodriguez, of course, deep in the middle of that big brawl that they had with the Angels the other night. I watched it uh, in the highlights on TV, Nick, and it looked like a hockey fight. Then they were out there and they were swinging. They weren't just wrestling around like the usual baseball, what they call a fight in baseball is usually just a big sort of WWE wrestling match for a while without any of the action. But there was guys in there throwing haymakers, I have to say. Seattle also hooked up with Kansas City in a trade with Seattle getting switch hitting first baseman Carlos Santana, giving up some prospects. Uh, Alan Davison again for playing time today. What will Santana's role be with Seattle? Santana will play first base in place of the recently injured Ty France. France's IL stint isn't expected to be long, but this trade could mean he doesn't come off the IL after the 10 days are up. Once France does return, Santana would be a welcome addition to the DH ranks. He was off to a very cold start, but was warming up with the weather, slashing 303, 432, 470 over the past month. We've given Santana 60% of the playing time between first base and DH. Playing time was reduced for several players, including France. Kyle Lewis, who has ongoing concussion symptoms. Jared Kalenic, still working through struggles at AAA. Dylan Moore, fewer games available at first base. Adam Toro, unlikely to see any time at first base. Uh, Luis Torrens, fewer games available at first base in DH. And Upton, fewer games available at DH. So a lot of playing time reductions. Yeah, I think uh, Justin Upton's going to see another playing time reduction to zero here pretty soon if he doesn't get off the schneid. He's uh, not been performing well at all. Maybe the bigger development in this deal, though, Nick, was that Kansas City called up first baseman Vinny Pasquantino, who is apparently called Italian Breakfast. He picked up that nickname somewhere along the line. Ryan Williams covering the story for playing time today. And Nick Richards on the Baseball HQ scouting team also wrote about Pasquantino in the Daily Call-Ups report. I have to say, uh, Pasquantino was really crushing AAA pitching, so how excited should we be about limbering up our bidding fingers for this weekend? Well, Ryan reported that uh, the Italian breakfast Pasquantino will get about 80% of playing time, starting at first base in DH. Uh, Nick noticed uh, how much things can change in the prospect world in a short time. This offseason, Nick Prado was the first baseman of the future for the Royals, and KC organization reports said Pasquantino needed to make an immediate impact to hold him off. Well, Pasquantino proceeded to do just that, hitting 280, 372, 576. That's a 948 OPS at AAA, leading the International League in home runs and RBIs, while Prado managed only a 234, 365, 449 line, still a respectable 814 OPS on the same team. Now, Prado was seeing development time in the outfield, firmly establishing Pasquantino as the Royals' first baseman of the future, and the future is now. In a June 9th Eyes Have It report, HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing said he saw Pasquantino making the adjustment needed to make consistent hard contact against plus velocity. As a result, Chris upgraded Pasquantino's preseason 7D rating. That's a 30% chance of attaining a platoon player level to a 9C, 50% chance of being an all-star. He has excellent plate discipline along with the raw power, walking 37 times while striking out 36 times at AAA. Has three stolen bases in AAA, but doesn't really have reliable speed, and defensively is limited to first base or DH. As a left-handed hitter, he's hit right-handed pitchers better, but got on base at a 347 clip this year against left-handed pitching. First two games versus Texas, he hit fifth, played first base, then DH hitting sixth, 0 for 5 so far, but two walks, no strikeouts. Can't say what he'll do, but he'll get a lot of playing time to show the Royals whether the future of first base is really here. 
Well, one thing's for sure, he can really hit. And the Nick Prado, I think, is an interesting case because, as you said, only a two thirty four batting average, but he's getting on base at a three sixty five clip. And anybody who really understands the importance of getting on base will appreciate that fact. And, of course, all leagues in fantasy baseball should be using on-base percentage. They don't. And uh, that diminishes Prado's value, assuming he ever gets back up into the big leagues. And speaking of that, uh, Ryan Hoover, in playing time tomorrow's American League Central coverage, suggested Prado might be in the mix to take Andrew Benintendi's place should Benintendi be traded as expected. Uh, Speaking of Fab, Nick, and prospects in Texas, the Rangers' Ezekiel Duran got a lot of bidding interest a couple of weeks back when he was called up. Now he's been optioned back to the minors to make room for Stephen Duggar on the 26-man roster. Rod Trusdell covering the story for playing time today. What's the upshot here? Texas acquired Duggar from San Francisco in the Willie Calhoun trade. Duggar figures to serve as a fourth outfielder, taking time from the likes of Zach, Zach Rex and Steel Walker, but he'll be a little more than a spot starter and the late innings pinch hitter or defensive sub. Meanwhile, Duran's departure leaves the strong side of a platoon at third base for fellow rookie Josh Smith. Smith has carried both his patient approach at the plate, 500 on base percentage with Texas after games of 625, and a gungo attitude in the field and on the bases to Texas. He doesn't project for much power, but otherwise has several paths to value with speed among them. Smith swiped 26 bags in 2021 with just five caught stealings. In Houston, the Astros put outfielder Michael Brantley kind of the glue in that team. He's on the 10-day IL after he left a game Sunday with shoulder discomfort. Jock Thompson again for playing time today. What's the PT aftermath here? Still one of the premier batting average on on BP forces in the game. Brantley's absence will hurt Houston and fantasy managers, my team being one of those. Uh, Outfielder Chaz McCormick was demoted on the weekend and put on a return shuttle almost as soon as he arrived. McCormick was in left field on Tuesday night. McCormick has shown better than average pop as a major league baseball part-timer over the past two years, but after a good April, he skidded to a 173 batting average over 93 at-bats before being set down. McCormick nips some playing time from Bradley's projection here, and he'll likely play over the next week, but it's a fluid situation. In what Detroit playing time analyst Tom Kephart at Baseball HQ called a high-impact transaction, the Tigers put outfielder Austin Meadows back on the IL with Achilles issues. Who gets the playing time benefit while Meadows is on his second IL stint? Utility player Willie Castro and speedster outfielder Victor Reyes will likely see the bulk of the replacement duty as they did during Meadows' previous IL stint. Veteran Robbie Grossman and rookie Roddy Green continue as the regular outfield fixtures. And finally, in Minnesota, the Twins put outfielder Trevor Larnick on the I.L. after core muscle surgery, and they activated second baseman Jorge Polanco from the I.L. Rick Green covers the team for playing time today. What's going on in Minnesota as they battle with Cleveland and Chicago for the A.L. Central? Some of Larnick's playing time shifts to Nick Gordon, who was mentioned in this week's Market Pulse column as making some recent positive strides in power and batting average. Polanco's return means that Luis Arias, who was filling in for Polanco at second base, We'll see more time back at first base or at DH, and that in turn means that Alex Kirilov moves from first base to the outfield, taking some of Larnock's plate appearances. Boy, that uh, Minnesota team's had trouble keeping guys on the field for sure. And speaking of Minnesota and the connection to your rooting interests in the uh, Southeast Conference, Minnesota pitching coach Wes Johnson really threw a curveball to the baseball world by leaving Minnesota to go back to Louisiana State University to be the pitching coach there. You're an LSU follower. What do you hear about Wes Johnson and that whole story? 
Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm really delighted to hear him coming to LSU. LSU's struggles this year were largely in the pitching department. The batting was great, but uh, pitchers were having problems. And as, as important as pitching is, what, what came to my mind as I looked at this whole situation was I had no idea how, how low pitching coaches got paid in the majors or in college. Apparently getting almost double salary, moving from the major leagues to LSU. We're talking about something in the neighborhood of uh, $750,000. Think about that compared with a football assistant coach who may make well over a million dollars. I had no idea that pitching coaches were receiving such low salaries. And maybe this is going to be a kick in the butt to get those salaries up across baseball because they're important. Uh, Pitching coaches can have a huge influence on the game. And uh, as we know, and so I found that interesting. The other interesting thing that I think we never think about in the long Major League Baseball season, one of the things that Johnson said was that he he uh, wanted more time with his family and the travel was, was being difficult. He's got a 12-year-old daughter, a wife, and wanted more home time. And I think we don't uh, think about that often enough as we talk about Major League Baseball. It's not the first time that Wes Johnson has made news in big league baseball. It was kind of a surprise when he got hired in the first place. As I remember, he was the first college pitching coach in something like 40 years to jump up to the major leagues when the Twins hired him away from Arkansas, the national runner-up in the 2018 College World Series. And he has all kinds of academic background in biomechanics, kinesiology, those kinds of things. So in a way, he was kind of the prototype, I think, for what the future of pitching coaching is going to be. And I know that there are going to be listeners out there who who are going to grimace when we say that, you know, a guy making a mere $750,000 a year is a low salary. But by Major League Baseball standards and considering the amount of money that's involved and the importance of what pitching coaches do – it does feel like an, a, a low salary, and they, uh, the uh, university teams are starting to realize that apparently, and they have a vested interest in keeping those young men on the field. And a guy like Johnson, who has that background in kinesiology and biomechanics, is going to be a real benefit to the LSU program, I'm sure. And like you said, it's a wake-up call for Major League Baseball, perhaps. It is indeed. I mean, uh, th- that's, a, that's a great salary for him to be making at LSU, almost double what he was making in the major leagues at, I think, 350000 a year. And it really astounds me that pitching coaches in the major leagues had such low salaries uh, to begin with. That's, uh, that's shocking to me. Again, low salaries, relatively speaking. Uh, there's lots of us out here who somebody said, I'll give you $350,000 to do anything in a year. I'd say, I'm in. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> but relatively speaking, when the pitcher that you're coaching is making $24 million in a year, all of a sudden it kind of looks like spare change. And it looks like Wes Johnson, between the money and the family, is going to get what he wants out of baseball by moving to LSU, and good for him, I say. Nick, uh, thanks a million. Have a great holiday weekend, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Right now, though, I want to remind you about another Baseball HQ podcast in the latest edition of The Eyes Have It. Podcast hosts Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey discuss some prospects who are gunning for the majors, including Rangers prospects Evan Carter, Luis Angel Acuna, and Aaron Zavala, and Orioles prospects Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg. Gunnar Henderson, he's gunning for the majors, you get it? 
And don't miss the next edition of this pod. Baseball HQ Radio will be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with the mad trader Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports, plus all our usual great stuff, National and American League news, Baseball HQ commentaries, and Fred Zinke next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to part two. Good to be back. You had a Baseball Prospectus article last Friday discussing whether fantasy managers get too focused on bad starting pitchers. Sounds funny, but what was the impetus for analyzing that topic? I think as an industry, like uh, so much of the focus on analysis, like we, we obviously look at starting pitching, but that focus is often on weekly matchups and also DFS. And what I want to see is if this results in perhaps too, too many people picking up bad or I'd say more fringy starters, because we're, we're minimizing the seasonal contest that so many of your listeners play in. You also said it was going to be the first in a series of articles in which you plan to look at various issues from different fantasy team perspectives. What does that mean and how are you going to be doing it? So the idea there, I kind of want to look at conventional wisdom, you know, such as this one from a strategic standpoint and see if that conventional wisdom holds up or not. And the idea is to kind of help people in a tangible way using, you know, existing data sets from some of these industry leaks. Um, you know, today's piece, for example, which which talks more about like the middle relievers that we could be using instead of those so-called fringy starters, you know, ties into that to see if those middle relievers are overlooked. And then I think next week, something I'm considering is seeing if you can trade your way or, you know, pick up free agents to get out of an ERA whip or, or batting average hole. True to the series theme, you looked at the starting pitcher issue from all three perspectives, league-wise, mix 12, mix 15, and monos. What did you learn about the differences in pitching roster construction among those various types of leagues and depths of leagues? So in 12 and 15 team mixed leagues, teams tend to use on average six to seven starters and, and two to three closers with virtually no middle relievers. I, I think something that surprised me there is I thought there'd be a couple more more uh, middlemen or non-closers in the 15-teamers, but even though the pitchers you're, you're taking at the bottom are, are lower quality, people are still using that same strategy. And it really isn't until you get to the mono leagues where middle relievers are used, but that's actually a necessity. I, I found an AL tout, for example, that nearly every single starting pitcher that could be you know active or rostered in, in the average week was rostered that that kind of surprised me i thought some of the fringier options on, on some of the worst teams wouldn't be used but they they sometimes or frequently are well you mentioned uh about the mixed leagues and the depth to which people will go to to grab up starters including starter sevens and starter eights and guys who are really not that good and you added that the valuation models that you were using suggest the model is simply suboptimal uh, what did you mean well so the best starting pitchers obviously are the best earners and you know this is regardless of format like you're you're always going to get the most bang for your buck out of those those top pitchers but when you start getting down to, let's say, SP4, SP4 at a 15-team mix and lower, you start seeing teams carry these marginal or even negative earning pitchers instead of relievers who are positive and even strong earners. So team, teams are kind of kicking themselves in the foot. I think they look at it like, well, you know, I can get wins, I can get strikeouts, and they're really ignoring the damage that they're doing to, to like two categories in ERA and WHIP, and, and they're just kind of treading water at, you know, at best and dragging themselves down at worst. You did note that the optimal model that you built works only with perfect information. That is, 
it assumes foreknowledge of which free agent pitchers will do really well, but we don't have that foreknowledge. So since most starting pitcher pickups flop, it seems the next adjustment is to simply avoid grabbing them. But then you ask rhetorically, if this many starting pitchers fail, why do fantasy managers keep grabbing them over safer, more reliable middle relievers? What did you conclude was the answer? Well, the answer I gave in the article holds, um, you know, we're, we're not trying to grab the average free agent starting pitcher. We're trying to get the best one. And, you know, we don't really need to hit on every pickup. So it doesn't matter if we miss and miss. We only need to hit big ones, right? Like that, that's really it. Like, so if Nick Pavetta, who was the top free agent pickup in the top mixed draft, I'm in, if you get him, you can miss four or five other times. You're not keeping those four or five other pitchers who stink. You're probably just going to drop them and drop them and drop them and try again. And if we hit big twice, if we get Pavetta plus like, you know, Michaelis, for example, who was the second biggest pickup, you're in really good shape. And at that point, you can even stop, probably stop picking up pitchers because you've done what you needed to do. In the follow-up article that came out Thursday of this week, uh, you went deeper into this question of pitchers by looking at all the free agent pickups that were made in your Tout Mixed 15 League. What did you find out when you did that deeper analysis? Um, so when I did that deeper analysis, it ties into what I just said, which is, you know, the, the best starting pitchers, you know, obviously are by far the best pickups, but what, what's really funny is that the best middle relievers are actually the second best like band of pickups, which you might not think, um, but they edge out that, that second band of starting pitchers. And then really what jumps out is like all the way at the bottom, like the damage that, and this, this is really the whole point of all this, like the damage that we're doing to ourselves with these really inferior starters is, is considerable. Like even one or, or two like horrible starts from a pitcher who, you know, truthfully was, was probably marginal in the first place. And you're like, Hmm, should I pick this pitcher up? We're, we're really hurting ourselves a lot by, by going after the, these types of pitchers. And, you know, we probably should just leave them to the free agent pool or, you know, as, as I said, you know, maybe consider one of these middle relievers, even though, as you pointed out and I pointed out, we don't quite know what the result is going to be, but we know that even a neutral result or a slightly bad result from one of these pitchers is better than the awful result from that starting pitcher we weren't that confident in. And that brings me back to what you said earlier about, you know, it being somewhat okay to churn through these mediocre starting pitchers, maybe keeping an eye on their matchups and streaming and so forth. But the the disastrous effects that they have, according to your uh, table that you have in the article, a starting pitcher six tier, which is 51 through 60, and, and seven, which is 61 through 69, combined for a total loss of uh, fantasy value of $178. And it seems like the advice should be, you know, even if you think you can stream your way into this, it really is a much better play, even in 15 team leagues. I don't know about 12s and, and you can comment on that. But the, as you said, the middle reliever top tier was very positive and the uh, middle reliever two tier was very positive as well. And that middle relief two, especially that those kind of pitches you can get for a buck or zero. Yeah. And they're the kind of pitchers where, yes, in a given week, it's not going to be that exciting. And I, I think that's part of the problem, right? Like someone looks at a that second tier and goes, ah, you know, I'm just going to get a couple strikeouts. I might get a win. I might not get a save, you know, but but if that pitcher doesn't give up a run and, you know, is, has like a one whip, it, it's still something, right? Like it, you're, you're still kind of pushing a little bit toward 
the bigger prize. And th- this goes back again to this idea. Like I think so many people have that DFS or, or weekly brain that they're not, they're thinking, oh, you know, I want to get the pitcher who's going to, you know, strike out eight or nine batters in a start. It's like, sure, we all want that. But you understand your odds of getting that, particularly with the streamer, are very low. And, and that, that's what I, I think people often miss. And, you know, if you do wind up, you know, one of the relievers I highlighted in the article, like J.P. Fireheisen, Felix Batista, you know, even Hennessy Cabrera. Hennessy Cabrera is this, like, really boring reliever that, like, nobody in, like, my tout has, has in the mixed tout has even had. And he's just been this solid, like, boring plugger all year. And I think if you just stuck that on your roster and kind of forgot about him, Instead of going, oh, I've got to pick up the starter, pick up the starter, pick up the starter, the odds are on average that you would have been better off. And meanwhile, you're chasing the nine strikeouts, but the the risk that you're facing that you mentioned is you're going to get one of those inning and a third, four and runs, nine base yeah. runner type of situations. And it really, whatever good the rest of your staff does at that time, those kind of outings will kill you. Of course, you can get those from the starters you drafted at the start of yeah. the year, especially if you drafted as I did, Jose Barrios. <laughs> well, and you know, you, you kind of, I think, hit on what's sort of an inadvertent problem, which is teams... Teams are in the middle, the bottom are pitching. I, I think they, you know, it's in poker, what's or gambling, what's you know called throwing good money after bad or bad money after good. I forget which you know way it is, but it's that idea that it's like I've got to catch up, I've got to catch up, and it's like, well, okay, but you know, chances are you're almost better off just trying to consolidate and hope that the pitchers you have, like kind of like Barrios, for example, bounce back because if they don't, you're you're doomed anyway. And all you're doing is adding more and more questionable arms and, and stats to, to the pile. And Todd Zola has always insisted and proved it that uh, those ratios can be moved. Even if you're relatively late in the season, there's a lot of opportunity in that ERA and ratio category. If you're, if you're kind of at three points, three points, three points, three points in, in wins, strikeouts, ERA and whip, you're a lot better off chasing ERA and whip than you are strikeouts and, and wins because bad pitchers don't get either in enough quantity and with enough certainty to make it worthwhile. Whereas middle relievers, especially good ones, high leverage guys, they might end up getting more wins than a lot of these sort of scrubby uh, starters. Yeah, and something interesting that's happening this year is so, you know, I, I, innings are down for starters. And yes, yeah, strikeouts are up. But, you know, some, something I noticed in this research, and I, I kind of pointed out at the end of the article, you have to go back to 2011. Starting pitchers as a group are on pace to strike, you know, strike out fewer batters in a season than they have in 2011. So that, that that's like a decade. That means that on the aggregate, you're just not getting as many strikeouts as you used to get from the group. You're not getting as many wins because they're not going as long. So yeah, already you're, you're going after a pool of pitchers and starting pitchers when you're getting less and less and less. And people haven't adjusted to that. They're still saying, well, I'm going to just keep, you know, hammering after these guys, hammering these guys. Am I saying to not get starting pitchers at all? No. And in fact, the conclusion I made was really, this is an on the margins piece of advice. You're, you're looking at the pitchers, let's say who are SP six or SP seven and mix. Those are the ones you should be looking at closely. Like if, if you drafted them, maybe getting them off your team. Um, if, if you're picking them as free agents, maybe letting them go. Um, so like to use an example, um, Tristan Cockroft of the ESPN puts together a, a pitching planner. And what I was doing in the past is I, for 15 team mixed, I was going down to like 90, like assuming like six pitchers in a 15 team league and saying, okay, 90 is kind of the cutoff for me in a 15 team league as to where the line is. 
I'm kind of looking at 75 now. 75 now is where it's like, okay, these pitchers I'm definitely going to, you know, use or, or stream. 76 and 90 is where it's like, well, I'll consider these pitchers, but I, I also might not use them depending on the matchup and depending on how I feel about them. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, also in, in Baseball Prospectus a few weeks back, you wrote about the difficulty this year of executing the strategy that everybody heard about before we were coming in. You don't have to worry about getting an established closer. Just get your saves after the draft out of the free agent pool. It didn't work. What happened? Well, I mean, one of the big things that happened is most of the relievers that we, we drafted were, have been really good. Um, the most fascinating takeaway for me at that piece at the time the piece was written was that of the not including Will Smith, who was, you know, traded out Will Smith, the pitcher, um, and not including, um, I think it was Craig Kimbrell or, you know, who wound up being traded every single reliever in the, the top 21 at the time I wrote the article, which was like a month ago was still leading his team in saves. Now the answer there is a Chapman, Clay Holmes eventually passed him. But the larger point was that if you, you know, People thought, oh, you know, there's going to be all these busts in the middle, like, you know, the 11th to 20th most drafted closers. It didn't happen that way. Then the other problem is at the bottom from like the, the 21st most commonly drafted reliever on down, they were in committees or they were in bullpens where the manager's like, ah, I'm not going to use anybody. And the reason that happened is the these closers or these bullpens just weren't that talented. So no one emerged. Like no one's really emerged in the Reds bullpen. You know, I'm not going to rattle off every team. Um, you know, in the Mariners, that's just how they roll. On the Razors, that's just how they roll. So you kind of have that problem of like, okay, well, there, there's just no closer emerging in a traditional bullpen because there's no, you know, there's no need for it. And then in a non-traditional bullpen or a bullpen where you don't have the talent, the manager just isn't picking somebody out of whole cloth to say, okay, this guy's the closer now. You also said that the common perception we have that teams are getting better at playing their best reliever in the highest leverage situations are just misinformed. What's actually happening? Well, I think what's happening is there are certain game situations where that's happening. Um, for example, yesterday in a losing effort, uh, Buck Showalter put Edwin Diaz, the, the Mets closer, who's firmly the closer, in in the eighth inning. Um, they wound up losing that game because the next best reliever, Drew Smith, actually you know came in, and this is actually tied to my point, and, and you know lost the game. So what's happening is more commonly the traditional model still has a pretty strong hold. I, I think for the most part, the manager might be using his best reliever on those occasions, but not, it, it's not a full blown thing. And then the second piece, and this ties into this Diaz Smith example I gave, uh, it turned out those were both high leverage situations, right? Like the Diaz situation, the nothing, nothing game in the eighth was a high leverage situation. Uh, but the Smith situation in the ninth was also a high leverage situation. It's a shame that you couldn't clone Edwin Diaz and and use him twice. Um, teams, there's a couple of what I'd call like smart organizations, like the Rays, like maybe the Mariners, arguably, who are taking this approach. But teams without a set closer are more typically a product of not spending and not having the talent or straight out tanking. So you, you just don't have as many of these you know, we're just going to put the best reliever into a high leverage situation scenario as, as some people think. There's also, you said, a reason that being speculative in May to acquire relievers often doesn't work either. Why is May such bad timing if you want to chase saves to chase saves? Well, the closers who stick in April, um, like, like Trevino, whom we mentioned earlier, they're generally replaced. Um, and then the ones who are good in April, you know, especially if they're shaky, they've kind of earned themselves some slack. So if you have a reliever who's had a good month, 
10 strong outings, you know, seven or eight saves, and he has a bad outing or two, I think the manager's like, okay, he, he's earned this, he's earned this, you know, I'm, I'm sort of okay with them. And it's similar with the replacements, right? So if somebody does replace a closer in April, I think he gets to, you know, he got there by pitching great. He was head and shoulders above the rest of that bullpen. And he's also allowed to to kind of ride the wave. So some of this is just manager tendencies as well. They they don't like to, in a traditional situation, they don't like to keep changing the role and keep changing the role and keep changing the role. So it, it takes a lot for there to be two changes in, in May and, in a case you have a solid closer to begin with, it, it again takes a lot for that manager to go, okay, I've, I've got to do something here. You also offered some general guidelines for considering closers after the draft. If you want to do that, what are the guidelines? So in a, in a league, like in an FBC league, like TGFBI or FBC, I think you still need to push for saves because it's an overall contest and you're still trying to maximize your points. I'd say be more willing to trade for saves, or this is true for me at least. Like in, in the past, uh, I used to hate trading for saves in, in mixed leagues. Now I've, I've already done it once, um, and I'll do it again if needed, just because they are not there in free agency. This works the other way too. I'm, I'm willing to trade a closer if other teams recognize this and are like, hey, I, I'm not going to find a closer via free agency. I'm I'm going to pay you the full freight. And then the final thing is I'm, I'm more focused more on getting a good reliever in a contender bullpen, regardless of role, and this ties back to the earlier discussion, than a so-so reliever or worse who might get saves in an unsettled bullpen. Um, some teams just won't declare closers. So if I miss out on a Hunter Strickland, maybe he's the closer the rest of the season on the Reds, and maybe I miss out on some saves. I'll live with that. I, I don't think that's going to be a common mistake, and I'll, I'll kind of make sure I get those like high-end ERA and whip, and maybe even a couple saves from that you know reliever on on a a good team. You closed the article by saying there's a common argument about Josh Hader and that it is that because he has such stellar rate stats, ERA and whip, he's worth taking even earlier next year than he was taken this year. But then you say analysts who think that way are actually missing the point. And it sounds like they're making the point that you were making. What am I missing and what are they missing? Well, I think that we we draft closers frequently for for so when we draft closers, we're really looking at the saves. The, the rates that certainly matter, but we're really zeroing in on those saves. So Hader's price was pushed up in drafts because the perception was that he was one of ten to twelve relievers, if that, who were going to keep the job and were worth you know paying the price of admission. If based on this year, there's more relievers, if that band goes from 10 to 12 to 15 to 20, that changes things considerably. And if you draft Hater next year, let's say in the second round, because you're like, well, he's he's gold, well, it's true, but you're getting him at value and you can probably wait and wait to still get a reliever who's going to keep the job and get 25 to 30 saves. I think the really important thing here isn't even so much the the gap between Hader and that reliever that you get in the 10th or 12th round. It's the idea that if there are that many okay relievers or reliable relievers, you can get a strong hitter in the second round. You can get a starting pitcher in the second round who's going to be better and more of an anchor you know, than a hitter or pitcher you get later and still get those 25 to 30 saves from a later pick. I was thinking about this the other night and I was uh, having a bad time looking at my tout AL team, which is really struggling. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I used to have this approach to relief pitching in my, it's a mono league that the most important thing I can look for when I'm kind of not interested in the high price closers and I'm looking at the lower price guys is if the guy's got the job going into the season, he's worth 
a little bit more consideration than somebody who's a little more shaky. And uh, the example this year, a guy that I looked at and didn't end up drafting was Gregory Soto in Detroit. And here he is with 15 saves, a 257 ERA. He's pitching really well. And somebody got him for eight or nine bucks in that league. And they're laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, it's 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 really tough because I I didn't like Soto either, but I I have a feeling the people who drafted him and I remember reading you know a lot about him, I think the people who drafted him really believed in him. I, I and when you pay eight or nine and an only, and particularly like Tout, where where people tend to be cheap when it comes to those bottom end relievers, I don't think that's an accident. Like if he went for three or four, I think okay, well somebody was just throwing a dart at a board. I think when you get close to double digits, that that person really believed in Soto, whereas it sounds like you didn't, and I I know I didn't. Another guy who popped up in that regard is David Bednar in Pittsburgh, not in my league, of course, but David Bednar pitching for a bad team, but he had the job. The problem, of course, is bad teams don't get enough wins for him to get enough saves, but he's got 11 saves and a 178 ERA. And there was a guy I did get in a mixed league, I think in like the 20th round or 19th round, something like that. There is some gold to be had even on bad teams. Oh, for sure. And and I think some of that is, you know, this goes back to the old school arguments, which is, you know, Bednar was a highly skilled pitcher. And if the skills are there, and particularly on, on a weak team where there's nobody else, you know, Chris Stratton was, was the competition. Chris Stratton is a fine pitcher, but he doesn't have the skills Bednar does. Then yeah, you you have you have an opportunity. This is kind of the opposite we're talking about with the athletics, where they really don't have that standout reliever. You know, the Pirates did, so they were going to use him. So having done all of this work and you're continuing to look at these things, what kinds of uh, closer strategies and starter, starting pitcher strategies will you be taking into next season's drafts starting in mix 12? Um, well, you know, I, I don't think for 12-team leagues much changes. Uh, closers are plentiful there, and you even see some of the lower-end closers like, you know, Daniel Bard, for example, out on the wire. So I, I don't think there's much of a change in mix 12. Um, in 15 team mix, they, I, like I said, draft your primary closer a little bit later. Um, you know, obviously, if a hater or you know, an elite, or a Rossi, Rysel Glacius or an elite reliever falls as a bargain, take them. But don't don't be obsessed with getting them early. Don't don't push up their price. And in mono leagues, I suspect closer prices will go up. But if you're in a league that doesn't recognize the phenomenon we're talking about, or a league where closers traditionally go cheap, like Labor NL. I'd wait it out and, and try for two like ten to twelve dollar closers. Um, you might be able to get two closers for the price of a hater or, or a Liam Hendricks this year in in those types of leagues. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum when you're trying to figure all this stuff out, and at the same time you're trying to zig when everybody else is zagging, but you don't know which way is zigging or zagging. Yeah, I mean that that's always the problem, especially in like leagues like Labor or Tout, because that the, the you know, I, I know I was in AL Tout with you and I left. So when I leave, it changes things, right? Because I have one way of doing things. And like Chris Blessing, who came in, has another way of doing things. So all of a sudden, you don't have that reliability of like, okay, like I kind of know how Mike is going to like handle this. With Chris, he was a wild card. It's like, well, he might pay up for closers. He, he might not. That is the problem. I was just looking at Doug Dennis is leading the, the uh, Tout American League League in saves. And his highest guy is Clay Holmes, who is not a pick. He picked him up in week one, I think, in Fab, or maybe grabbed him in the draft for a buck. I don't remember. But 
he deliberately seems to have avoided getting the so-called established closers, and here he is leading the league because he picked up guys like Paul Seawald and Diego Castillo, both in Seattle, and assuming that they were going to do what Seattle does and mix and match, he got a couple of those guys, Keegan Aiken, uh, even Matt Barnes picked up a save for him once upon a time. I think the, the message, if Doug's approach is correct, is you don't really have to get a lot of saves from one guy to get a lot of saves from a lot of guys. Yeah, well, well, Doug is also doing that all reliever strategy that I tried in 2020. Um, you know, so so he's doing that whole thing where he's just going relievers because there's no innings requirement. And last I looked, he was in first place, so it, it's it's working for him. Although some of that is predicated on you know nobody passing him because obviously there's going to be a cap for him in wins and, and strikeouts, or because of wins and strikeouts. Because of wins and strikeouts, but he's kind of in the 10th, 9th places in ERA and whip, and he's absolutely dominating the offense to 12, 12, 12, 12, 11. So uh, the, it's kind of like the Steve Moyer approach to, uh, to this, where he was always like that guy who was willing to spend $20 yeah. on pitching and 240 on hitting to dominate and then try to mix and match enough to do well in the ERA and whip and pick up enough saves and all of a sudden you've got a winning team. Doug's ahead by eight points in that league. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about that is if it stays the way it is and no team can emerge, you know, and, and get, you know, past 90 points, Doug's going to win. Uh, the thing I identify when I tried that strategy that makes it difficult is usually somebody finishes with, with a hundred points or higher in a, in a mono. And if they do that, you obviously can't win. Cause I think your ceiling with that strategy is 97 points. I think that's about right. Uh, and you're, you are kind of depending on the rest of the guys all kind of mediuming out on, on one category versus another. And so far it's worked that yeah. way. And I should say um, the uh, on-roto site, as people who know it use, has a toy box feature with a couple of projected standings. And uh, when, when I looked at it last, uh, Doug was not the winner in either of them. Now, of course, there are projections and and there are all kinds of uh, difficulties with guys you have on reserve and guys you have on IL who might replace your worst players and that kind of thing. But I thought it was instructive that, you know, we got to keep in mind, we're still barely into the halfway point. Yeah. And, and those models, like one of those is actually the HQ model, you know, that those models yeah. like don't always adapt immediately. So you might have a closer, for example, who was projected two weeks ago to get saves or a recent injury, and it just doesn't, you know, it isn't aligning. I know something funny about that model too. In my tout mix, like I've, I've been, I've had the luxury of reserving and activating CJ Chrome. Like when he's away from cores, I reserve him. Oh, when he's home, I obviously activate him because you know he's great there. And the model, like that, that's a ten point swing for me if I have him active or reserved. So you know, some of those quirks can lead to some pretty like you know funky things. You know, to your point. Yeah, and the projections can't be all that great. Uh, when I was younger and single, I used to build spreadsheets and import all kinds of different projections and average them, kind of doing what Ariel Cohen ended up doing with the, his projections and and kind of trying to figure out where I was going to be because I wanted to know where I was going to be by the end rather than where I was as far as formulating trade offers. And, you know, it kind of works, but it also kind of doesn't. But you have to use something to, to calibrate what kind of offers yeah. you want to make and why not that? For, for me, those trade calculators are, are a good tool to have and I, I will reference them, but ultimately you have to have some common sense too. Like you have to look at something and be like, okay, well, I know what the calculator tells me. 
you know, I know for like this reason, you know, that me trading my elite closer for this, you know, like average or ordinary everyday hitter is probably still a bad idea. And if, if I have to do it, if I can't make any other trade, then fine, I'll do it. But I, I'm, I'm not just going to make the trade because the calculator tells me to make it. And I should say, I just looked up the uh, projected HQ standings on, on Roto and Doug is projected to win at this point. So maybe he is doing something right. And, uh, I wonder what you think of having sort of pioneered this idea. Cause you were the only guy, I think that 2020 season who had read the constitution and realized that they had made the change about innings. So you were free to, to, to make this uh, strategy try to work and. Oh. I wonder what you think now that if Doug Dennis does make it work and the uh, and wins the league without having any starting pitchers, because it's so unreflective of how the game is actually played on the field, are we going to have to go back and try to figure out a way to force teams to get starting pitchers on their rosters? Because if they well, don't, there's going to be probably three teams trying it next year, I bet. Well, but, well, here's here's the thing about that. I I, do, I don't know if you remember why this rule was instituted. It's because there was like a, a lopsided trade and one of the, the folks who made the trade was like, well, I'm trying to make innings and, you know, I, I don't want to lose points because of that because Tout has a, a fab penalty the following year. So the the committee that runs Tout got rid of the innings requirement. I, I thought they should have put in, like, say, an 800 inning requirement, something like, OK, well, you know, it, it's low. It still gives you some flexibility. Maybe you can run an unconventional strategy out there with two or three starters, but you have to have some level of starting pitching. And that truthfully was my hope in trying the strategy. I was hoping I'd win, but I really was hoping to kind of convince them, like like you're saying, Patrick, like this honestly is not reflective of how the game should work, and we should have some sort of innings limit. You know, and actually, if you you go all the way back, I don't know if you know this or not. So the the pioneer, the true pioneer of the strategy was Alex Patton. Um, Alex Patton in an old school four by four league, you know, the, the one of the original leagues a million years ago in the early '80s. He, he joined a league and there was no innings requirement. He figured out, he's like, I, I can just run, and this is four by four, which made it easier. Yeah. But he's like, I can run nine relievers out there, spend a dollar on every one, hope that you know a couple become closers or get saves because they always do. Right. But more importantly, if they don't, I can spend 251 on offense, have a killer offense no matter what happens, and then you know trade a hitter or two for closers later. And that's what he did. And he won the league going away because he was only throwing away one category wins. And the people in that league were like, okay, well, we, we obviously can't have this. Like, we need innings requirement. That's where innings requirements came from. So I, I understand why the folks at Tau did what they did, but I think they need to add some sort of innings limit. And it probably needs to be lower than what it used to be to reflect the fact that pitchers don't throw as many innings as they do or starting pitchers don't. But it should be something, maybe 800 innings, you know, maybe 750, but, but something below where it was, but you know, above zero. I know some leagues just have a requirement that you have to have X number of starting pitchers, and then they have rules right. to designate whether a guy qualifies as a starting pitcher, just the way a guy can qualify at second base or not by the number of starts the previous year. And then if he gets a certain number of starts in this year, he, he graduates to that category. I think there are way, ways to manage it. It's all pretty interesting. At the same time, it's I also think it's pretty interesting that differences in rules allow us to see people try novel strategies or to to exhume uh, uh, non-novel strategies from the past uh, like you mentioned the uh, the 251 and 9 i always thought it was larry labadini who the, the that plan was named after him i think he tried it in labor but it may have been after uh, alex patton i don't know but uh, somebody yeah. tried it 
Well, Labadini tried it, but his, his already the innings requirement already existed. So he was just trying from a different perspective to be like, okay, I'm still going to try to compete across all five categories, knowing that I, I might finish middle of the pack. But his theory was that pitchers are variable. So I will just spend, you know, on the best nine one dollar pitchers, I'll, I'll churn and pick pitchers up all year. And I'll kind of see what happens. And I know that that's kind of usually Doug doesn't spend $9, but Doug in NL labor, that's typically his approach. Like he'll spend 30 or $40 on pitching, or at least he's done it in the past. And he will try to leverage as much as he can of offense while doing that on pitching. I, I did that accidentally one year in Tout Wars um, NL. I, I spent 30, about 30, I think it was 27 on my pitching staff, all this money on offense. And I finished second. And I think I would have won that year if not for like all the offensive injuries I had. And by the end, I was kind of like cresting upward because my offense was predictably great and my pitching was fine. So I think I think that's Larry's plan. Larry's plan is more like, well, with a nine dollar pitching staff, you're not going to finish with five points in pitching because pitching is variable. You're going to finish with 20 or 25 or 30 points in pitching if you manage it right. And you're going to dominate offense and you might win. So to be clear, he wasn't punting starters. He was just punting expensive pitchers. He was punting pitching from the standpoint that he was like the typical $1 pitcher is about as reliable as a typical, you know, seven or $8 pitcher. And if I get lucky and all these $1 pitchers, you know, pitch, you know, if they all pitch like seven or $8 pitchers and one or two, you know, emerge and are the next Tony Gonsolin, for example, mm-hmm. and he Gonsolin for six, six is you're in labor, but you know, you get the example, right? I might be able to, you know, finish with a good pitching staff. And as you said, uh, maybe not so much in mono leagues, but in mixed leagues, you can churn those uh, last few starting pitcher spots and try to play the matchups and stuff. Although, as we discussed earlier, that's uh, sometimes a mugs game I, as well. Yeah, I think the thing that's really difficult now with that strategy is the fact that because you know teams are using openers, because those bottom end starters are getting fewer innings. Um, you know, just and the number of reliable pitchers at all or starting pitchers at all is dwindling. That's kind of what makes that strategy difficult compared to to in the past. Like even going back to 2015, I think when every team used a traditional five starter model, you know, everybody was kind of gearing toward their their starters all getting 200 innings or 180 innings at least. It was a little bit easier to do. Now there, there's so many teams that are like, okay, this is a tandem strategy, or we're going to use an opener, we're going to use a bulk bulk starter. There's just fewer pitchers to come by. I, I do wonder if you could try that strategy, how well it would work. I think you could make it work, but it, it would be, it'd be challenging. It would be. And part of the reason I think it's getting more workable, at least an aspect of it is getting more workable, is the rapidly declining number of win decisions that are going to starters. I looked at the other day and I think it was down to like below 30% of so far this year of wins have been awarded to starting pitchers. And that means the bulk of them are going to relievers of some stripe. And then the question is, you have to be able to find somebody in your relief core. If you're going that route, who doesn't pick up one or two wins during the year has to be one of those, uh, you know, nine or 10 win guys. Uh, I had one many years ago, Arthur Rhodes of Seattle won 10 games for me and helped me win a league. But I, I didn't draft him thinking he was going to get 10 wins. I drafted him thinking he was going to be a useful guy, a few saves, a few wins, and good ratios. But if you hit on a couple of those guys, all of a sudden you can be competitive in wins and not pay the ERA and ratio penalty that somebody, going back to your earlier point, somebody who drafts seven starting pitchers and f- the last three of them are kind of questionable, he's as as rough off for wins or in the same position for wins as you are, but you're miles ahead of him on the ratios. 
Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it's, it, there's some luck and you, you never know, but yeah, you only, it, it's similar to the starters. You only need to really hit on one of those. Like last year, you know, Chad Green was, was the guy, but there were a few others, but yeah, you, you only need to hit on one of those, those pitchers to really have a payoff. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes, players that you like for the rest of the season and players not so much. Let's start with your boons. These are players who look like good value for the rest of the year in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a boon? Okay, so Ryan Mountcastle, um, (laughs) he was everyone's favorite bus candidate in March, and he was pretty bad in April. He has very quietly put up a solid, since May 1st, a solid 11 home runs, 26 runs, 31 runs batted in, and a 287 batting average. And that doesn't even account for the fact that he missed a little bit of time with an injury. Um, his hard hit metrics are, are just off the charts. Um, the only thing that looks bad for him are the, the walks and the strikeouts. I think if not for that, he'd be an elite hitter. Uh, but this is fantasy, so so really, I, I think his spray chart in 2021 showed he wouldn't be impacted too much by the fences moving back in Baltimore. And, you know, right now that that's kind of what it looks like. At least he's going to finish with close to 30 home runs. If he holds up at the pace he's at, even accounting for, for the bad April. And I, I think people really overlooked him and still kind of are. I, I like Mount Castle. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a boon? Josh Bell. He's sort of the AL version of Mount Castle for me. He's a historically slow starter. He's not a superstar, but he's productive. Um, he has a little sneaky value too, in that he's a trade candidate, and he's a trade candidate in a market where people really are looking for offense. Uh, a change of scenery for him away from Washington, where they're not really doing that well as a team, could boost his runs in RBI and perhaps his homers, depending on where he lands. Over to the mound, uh, how about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Uh, Chris, Kristen Javier or Javier. So I think the temptation with these sorts of picks is to find someone struggling and say he'll rebound. I'm going with a pitcher who's been really great, who I think some people are looking at his youth and inexperience or, or lack of innings and, you know, think he's going to fade. Uh, my money is that he's going to continue to pitch well. He's on a great team. They generally get the best out of their young talent. And I think there might even be a buy high opportunity here if, if people don't believe in him. And in the National League, how about a pitcher who could be a boon? Uh, Luis Castillo. Uh, every year, Luis Castillo starts off slowly, and then for three or four months, he's really good, uh, particularly in the strikeouts. Um, he was derailed early by an injury. He's very quietly rounding into form like he always does. Uh, and for some reason, in a redraft league, you have a disappointed Castillo fantasy manager who thinks, oh, you know, he's not doing well. It's a good time to try to get him. And uh, like with Bell, there's a bonus in play if he's traded. Uh, he's ar- arbitration eligible on, on the Reds, who've been very cheap. And he might be able to sneak a few more wins in, on a better team. Let's look at their Banes now. And again, we'll return to the American League. Who's a batter who could be a Bane for the rest of the season? Um, Adelis Garcia. So he's been great. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I, I was wrong about him. I, I said to stay away in, in March. But I, I suspect pitchers are going to make the adjustment on him and, and stop throwing him as many fastballs as they're doing. And I think they're going to shy away from the zone. Uh, the, the strikeout to walk rate is still pretty bad. And I also think the weaknesses he had last year against off-speed stuff and sliders in particular will be rediscovered in the second half. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? Jake Cronenworth is is a great player in real life. I think for fantasy, people conflate that and you know don't realize that he doesn't have the power and especially the speed that justified him in the top 150 for ADP, which is where he was going. I see the average maybe bouncing up to 270 or 280. But for the rest of it, I think this is just who he is. 
And look, if you have him in an NL only or maybe even a deep mix, that's okay. But I think people are expecting more out of him, and we're thinking he's going to hit 15 to 20 home runs. He's going to steal 10 to 15 bases. I think they're in for some disappointment. Back over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Tyler Wells. So Wells has a lot of hype. I, I know people love him. I think he's okay as a streamer at home, but he's been really lucky uh, more than he's been great. He's in a very unforgiving division, as we know. And if you look at the Orioles' second-half schedule, it, it's got a lot of those ALS teams in it. Another caveat with him, he's never thrown more than 110 innings in a season as a professional. He's two years removed from Tommy John recovery. I think in seasonal redraft leagues, there's an expiration date. The Orioles are probably going to shut him down or start limiting his innings. So if you're looking at Wells, like I'm going to have him for the next four months, or I'm sorry, three months, you should probably be looking at maybe lopping a month off of that. And if that's not enough, his strikeout percentage is barely 15% and his walk rate's around 6 So he's a 9% strikeout minus walk. And I know lots of pitching analysts uh, say strikeout minus walk is really the first go-to metric that you should always be looking at because it tells you so much with such a simple formula. Yeah, I mean, that that's a... That's a really good point. And, you know, frankly, the other piece, too, is that if, if he's not striking people out or if he's striking that few batters out, he's not delivering value in that category. Going back to what you were talking about earlier with those low-grade starters not delivering the strikeout you expect. And in this instance, oddly enough, he's got six wins <laughs> despite doing what he's doing on a team that is really struggling to win games. So you never know. Uh, who's a National League pitcher who could be a bane? I hate to say it because I've been tout wars, but uh, Carlos Carrasco. So I, I'm not, it's not just the back to back bad starts against the Astros, who are very good, that bothers me. I, I think there's an injury lurking here. He, he has quite the injury history. He left the first start against Houston with an injury. And I think he's going to miss some time at this point or at some point. I think that's going to be sooner rather than later. Um, even if he does stay healthy, I, I see him right now as more of a, a matchup play and mix and a sure thing. And if he finishes with an ERA above five, I wouldn't be surprised. And unlike Wells, I know the strikeouts are there. And with the Mets, the wins have been there. I just don't have a lot of trust right now for Carrasco. Mike Gianella's Boons, Ryan Mountcastle of Baltimore, Josh Bell of Washington, Christian Javier of Houston, Luis Castillo of Cincinnati, his Baines, Adelise Garcia of Texas, Jay Cronenworth of San Diego, Tyler Wells of Baltimore, and Carlos Carrasco of the Mets. Tell our listeners, Mike, where they can keep up with your work. Um, well, you can find me at Baseball Prospectus. That's BaseballProspectus.com. Um, you can also find me at Twitter at Mike Gianella, all one word, um, just like it's uh, just like it's probably going to be spelled here when you put this up on the site. You used to have a really terrific podcast, the uh, Flags Fly Forever pod. Is that in hiatus or what, what's going on with the pod? Well, nothing's going on right now. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we, we started up again, but we, yeah, you're right. We have not been recording this year. I, I would imagine at the very least that you'll, you'll find it. But by, by the way, I, I should mention, um, since you mentioned podcasts, I, I do an ironically named podcast called it's a baseball podcast. You, you can go search for it. I, I think it's out there, you know, on Apple and all the other places that you find podcasts. So what that is, is John Hagland who, and Samuel Hale, who both used to be a baseball prospectus and are now not there. We talk a little bit about baseball, but we kind of talk about the world and, you know, other, other stuff going on. So if you do want to hear me occasionally podcast, it's, you know, it's not every week, but it's infrequent. It's called it's a baseball podcast and you can find it out on, you know, Apple, you know, iTunes and all the places that you, you find podcasts. We're, we're nine episodes in by the way. 
Mike, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I do hope we get to do it once more, at least during the season. And again, thanks very much for being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Next, next time we, we do and It's a Baseball podcast, maybe I'll reach out to you and have you, you on as a guest there. Oh, boy, that would be really fun. Yeah, do that, please. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But there was one more item from the HQ site that I wanted to mention. In the speculator column, HQ writer Ryan Bloomfield talks about a Bloomboards barrage. In case you don't know, Bloomboards are the short, snappy player analyses with which Ryan regularly spams Twitter users. That and the other items I've mentioned already are only a few of literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, as I mentioned, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders on the mound and in the batter's box, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at San Diego second baseman Max Ferguson is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. It might be said that his speed is a game changer, literally. Through 67 games, 22-year-old San Diego Padres second baseman Max Ferguson has swiped 52 bases in 2022. Perhaps you might remember that on June 17, 2022, frequent flyer, Estuary Ruiz, who also plays second base in the Padres organization, currently has 53 steals, one more than Ferguson, through 69 games. In other words, the Padres currently have two second basemen in their organization who have stolen a combined 105 bases as of July 1st, 2022. Holy cow, that's incredible. To put that number in perspective, the Padres as a team currently rank 27th in Major League Baseball with 25 team steals. Compare that to 105. Nevertheless, despite his 242 batting average and 399 OBP, plus the aforementioned 52 steals, Ferguson is still at high A Fort Wayne and thus is not likely to make his major league debut for a few years. That's why 22-year-old San Diego Padres second baseman Max Ferguson, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available in your dynasty league. Even so, Ferguson's 52 steals may be a game-changer, not only for the Padres, but for all Major League teams and fantasy teams. Here's why. Ferguson's success rates may influence the following rule changes. As the Athletics' Jason Stark pointed out on March 28, 2022, 
Baseball will be moving second base inward in the second half of the 2022 season, so it will be closer to first base and third base by about 13.5 inches, over a foot. Remember, Stark continued, the effective distance between first and second base was never really 90 feet in the first place. So the old distance was 88 feet, 1.5 inches, according to Stark, and the new distance will be 87 feet, approximately 3 feet shorter than the distance, 90 feet, from home plate to first base, making it easier to steal. Additionally, MLB.com's Anthony Kastrovitz surmised on June 15, 2022, that the pickoff step-off rule, effectively limiting pitchers to two pickoff attempts per batter, paired with the 18-second pitch clock, has injected speed of a different sort into minor league baseball. We're seeing that with Ferguson. There was this one week where I had like 10 stolen bases, Ferguson said, the same MLB.com article. Yet another reason to catch 22-year-old San Diego Padres second baseman, Max Ferguson, catch him if you can, is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about taking on my wife in a sports gambling contest. The other day, my wife Lisa and I were watching a ball game on TV, and an ad popped up for an online bookmaker. A bookmaker ad on a ball game? Very rare, I know. Anyway, the bookie flashed some current betting promos, offering plus 150 on this contest, minus 150 on that one. Not being an aficionado, Lisa asked me what all of that meant. I told her what little I know about it, that it was all based on $100 bets, that plus 150 was a bet on the underdog, you bet 100, you win 150, and minus 150 was a bet on the favorite, forcing you to bet 150 to win 100, and of course every winning bet is also returned to the original wagerer. At this point, she was certain that the best path to gambling riches was obviously to pick a really bad team and just always bet against them. That's when I mentioned that the sportsbook doesn't just let you bet evenly when the teams are clearly imbalanced. That's why they call it the DraftKings Sportsbook and not the DraftKings Charitable Foundation. And that they set those lines, plus 150, minus 150, whatever they are, to balance the bets on both sides of the particular game and making money by setting the lines differently on the two sides. She gave me that look that I get when I'm mansplaining inconceivable concepts like stock options or Wi-Fi or why I'm going to Arizona in November while she's freezing her nose off here in Canada. You know the look. It's a mix of I don't get it and I don't care. So I said, let's have a contest. We will take opposite sides of 50 bets and we'll see how it all comes out at the end. Hoping to stick the needle in, she said the awful, hopeless, terrible team she would bet against every time would be the Cincinnati Reds, which she darn well knows is my favorite team, even if she thinks my favorite player was Jimmy Bench. To be fair, at that time in early May, the Reds were one of the worst, if not the worst, teams in baseball. So we set up the bet. She would bet against the Reds in 50 straight games, and I would bet for the Reds in those same 50 games. We would use the betting lines posted at Yahoo Sports, which apparently she trusts because Yahoo is her email provider. Unfortunately for her, around the start of May, the Reds started playing quite a bit better, going 11-9 and in the first 20 games. I was ahead 495 scoons and she was already down 800. Yes, that math is correct. More on that later. 
The Reds split the next 10, but she was still losing. She was down a further 80, while my profit had been trimmed by 65 to 430. Still ahead. The fourth 10-game stretch was her best. The Reds lost 7 of 10, and because she was betting against the Reds, she recovered 275, trimming her overall loss to 605. Meanwhile, my 430 profit had all but disappeared. I was down to 15 bucks in the black. The Reds also lost 7 of the last 10 games, letting Lisa recover another 200 and finish the contest down about 405, or 8.1%. Meanwhile, the Reds' relapse into uncompetitiveness had cost me 295, pushing me to minus 280 for the contest. When I showed Lisa how things had turned out, her first question was, how could we both have lost money? Then I showed her, the lines are carefully set so the loser pays the winner and the winner pays the house. For example, in a game near the end of the contest in San Francisco, the Giants were prohibitive favorites at minus 225, while the Reds were underdogs at plus 180. So she had to bet the 225 hoping to win 100, while I bet the 100 hoping to win 180. I did win, and I got my 180 payoff on the money line, plus my 100 bet back. So in all, 325 went into the pot, and 280 came out. Well, where did the other 45 go, she said. The sports book kept it, I said, as unsmugly as I could manage. Then I showed how we had both ended up losing. She finished up with about $4,600 out of the original 10000 in our combined bankrolls, and I had finished with just over $4,700. I had narrowly won our contest, but the book had won the money. It was up about 7%, and we were both down. But that's not fair, she said. No, indeed. That's why we call it gambling, and the book calls it a business. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 1st. Happy Canada Day, happy Independence Day, and thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday Full Edition, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike is always a very interesting guy to talk with about pretty much anything, and he clearly knows his onions when he's talking about baseball and fantasy baseball, and he thinks about both of those topics quite a bit. He's just a terrific guest. He's also an excellent Twitter follow, especially if you enjoy convoluted puns. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Harold Nichols, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Ernie's Podcasts, and School of Aesthetics, wherever you go to catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast growing and going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. 
Thanks again for listening. Have a fun holiday weekend, and please be safe with the fireworks if you're using them, especially if there are kids around. Keep in mind, cherry liqueur and cherry bombs are a bad mix. And remember, we'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and all the usual great stuff, our National and American League news coverage and our Baseball HQ commentaries, along with Fred Zinke on the next Friday Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.